Open your Bibles, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. If you're visiting with us, we are going through a verse-by-verse study of this short epistle. 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a great passage that we're going to look at this morning to prepare our hearts for the communion table. We're going to seek to apply what we've learned the last couple weeks from verses 1 through 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, let me just read again. I know it was read earlier in the service. I just want to highlight a couple things before we start here. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply, and then he gives a list of seven virtues that you supply to your faith. And you see them listed there in the uh, New American Standard. It's moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And then he says something in verse 8 that I want to focus on just for a few moments. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What we see here is that the Christian life does not end at the moment of salvation, but the Christian life now continues. To your faith you add these things. That verse I just read to you, verse 8, is the goal. You might want to write that in your Bible. That's your goal right there. That's your goal. They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in verses 5 through 7, he is telling you how to reach the goal. By adding these virtues to your life. The ESV says verse 8 like this. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and are unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. To have an effective life and a fruitful life. God saved you, like I said, and what is going to be made of your life between the moment you were saved and the moment you see Jesus again? When he comes again, what what is your life going to be in between? That is the focus of this passage. If I say it in the positive, it goes like this. If these qualities are yours, you will be effective in the knowledge of Christ. You will be fruitful. And the way to achieve these goals is moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, and brotherly kindness. Now, Peter's assuming two things. He's assuming two things when he writes this. He is assuming that this is a goal that matters to the Christian. He's assuming that. That's, in his mind, this is a given. This is the goal that matters to us as Christians. He wants to motivate us, and he says the way to achieve this goal that you desire as a Christian is to do these things. We desire this. 
A true Christian desires this. A true Christian desires to be effective and fruitful in the knowledge of Christ. That is the goal of a true Christian. You don't try to motivate people with things that don't motivate them, do you? Some people try to motivate their misbehaving child by saying something like, Listen, Johnny, don't you want to be a good boy? When he's pitching a fit in the middle of the floor and just walk up to him and say, Hey, Johnny, don't you just want to be a good boy and not act like this? That doesn't motivate Johnny. Johnny doesn't want to be a good boy because he's doing that in the middle of the floor. What would motivate Johnny is to say, now, Johnny, if this doesn't stop, we're going to have to go to the room and apply some discipline to the situation. He's motivated then. He says something, you say something that motivates people to what they desire. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's saying, because you as a Christian desire this, he's assuming this, he's assuming you're a Christian, and he's assuming as a Christian you desire this to be effective and fruitful He's saying, this is how you get there. And so he provides the motivation. And he assumes you desire this. And right away, I guess, when you see that, you, ask, you have to ask your question, do I desire this? You're, you're confronted with a test right now, and I just want you to put that in your, right in front of you and ask yourself that question, do I really desire this? Do I desire to be effective and fruitful? in the Christian life. That would be very telling. I think most Christians would answer it, know how to answer the question, yeah, I want to grow. But when you look at their life, there's a big disconnect between what they say they desire and what they do. They would say, yeah, I desire to grow because that's the right thing to say. But they haven't opened their Bible in weeks. Or, yes, I desire to grow, but they don't fellowship with other Christians. People say that, but they don't really desire it, and thus they're not motivated when they read a verse like this. They're not motivated to do anything with it. You you will do what you desire to do. You will be motivated by what you desire to do. And so this confronts us. Is this our desire to be effective and fruitful? Or just to be ineffective and unfruitful? Do Peter's words motivate you? That's the question. I've had to wrestle with this myself. You know, I look at it and I go, this is the question. I, after I become a Christian, God puts this desire in me, this faith in me, this faith that's living, and faith that wants and desires to grow. Secondly, Peter is assuming something else. He is assuming that these qualities, these seven qualities, he's assuming they are attainable. He's not saying something to us like God expects you to do something you can never do. He's not just saying, oh, these qualities are just for those in the ministry or, in, or pastors. He's not saying that. This is for all Christians. 
And he's assuming and he, that it's all attainable by everybody who claims the name of Christ for everybody who has faith. It's all attainable. He puts it in front of us and says, this is how you get to the goal, to be fruitful and effective. Go back up to verse 3 of 2 Peter, verse chapter 1. You see again why this is all a reality. Why is any of this stuff a reality? It's all a reality because of what God has done. And that was seen in verses 3 and 4 last two weeks. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. The reason is because He has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We already have everything as a Christian, all the resources we need. Verse 4, for by these he has also granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. He has helped us escape corruption. He has given us a new nature. He has let us become partakers of the divine nature. He has done all of this to every Christian. That is why verse 8 can be a reality. It's the reason I can be effective and fruitful. It is the reason I can apply the means by which that can happen, verses 5 through 7, because He has done all of this in me. He has done something at the deepest level of my being. He has done something in transferring me and setting me free in salvation. He has delivered me from the kingdom of darkness. He has given me a new nature. That is why I can do what he's about to say, what he says in these verses. He's, he's granted to us all these promises of his word. And he's done all of this not to make us passive. There's some people that just think you get passive after you become a Christian. You just get passive. That's not true. If you're passive, you will not drift into holiness. You will drift into selfish, fleshly indulgence. That's what you will do. This is not passive stuff. Too many are passive. When this calls for aggressiveness in our sanctification. so that we can become effective and fruitful. Notice in uh, verse 5, now for this very reason also, let's just stop with that phrase. <clears throat> Before he tells you the means by which to be effective and fruitful in verse 8, he gives you 5 <clears throat> through 7. He says in verse 5, he says, now for this reason also, taking into account verses 3 and 4, that's what he's doing, taking into account that you are you have a, a, a powerful battery pack on you, all these divine resources, taking into account everything that God has done in you because all of this is true. We are in an advantageous position. If I know that I need to get from point A to point B 
and I know that I have enough gas in the tank to get me there, then I proceed with confidence, don't I? I proceed with confidence because I know I've got the fuel to get me there. God has put us in that kind of a position, advantageous position. Peter's saying, you have this position. Let me motivate you to take full advantage of your resources that God has given you. It's like a college student who, whose parents are able to provide everything for them to go to college. They say, okay, I'm going to put you in this position where you can improve your life and you can have and realize your potential and all of those things. I'm going to send you to college. I'm going to pay the bills. I'm going to give you a place to live, provide your food, provide your tuition, provide all of those things for you, the insurance on your car, all that stuff. I'm speaking from experience here, but you you just, the list could go on, right? But the point is, uh, you take full advantage. And the parent says, take full advantage of this. Take full advantage of this and, and, and study hard and that you might reach your goal that you might reach your potential. And see, if you're someone who's blessed like that, wouldn't it be a sad, sad to just lazy that away? Wouldn't it be just sad to not, not in any way take advantage of those resources you've been given and just not realize your potential? It's not because you lacked opportunity. Because you had the opportunity. It's not that you lacked resources, because you had the, opportunity, the resources as well. And that's what Peter's saying. God has set you up, believer. God has set you up. Now, for this very reason, God has set you up. He's given you this very incredible position. And, and he is saying to us, don't waste the opportunity. Don't come to the end of your life and say, I just wasted my life. God gave me the resources and God gave me the opportunity and I didn't use any of it. So he's trying to motivate you to not let that happen, to be effective and to be fruitful. It won't be God's fault. <clears throat> Look at uh, 1 Peter. Back over in 1 Peter, you see the same kind of well, just hold your hand there. Let me say this. Look in verse 5. While you're in 2 Peter, don't, don't lose 2 Peter. See where it says, applying all diligence? That's the New American Standard. The ESV says, make every effort. Applying all diligence, make every effort. That's in verse 5 of 2 Peter chapter 1. And that's what I was cross-referencing over in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13 after he tells us all that Christ has done for us in that, in that chapter, he says something very similar. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy as I am holy. Back to 2 Peter 1. He says, applying all diligence. Uh, if you have a New American Standard, that word all means 
not just effort, but great effort. Great effort. Um, if God just said, make an effort, that would be convicting enough, wouldn't it? Effort. Effort. Think about the word effort. Would you say that your approach to the word of God is one of effort? Is that a word you would even use? Effort? Would diligence be a word you would even use for your desire to live the Christian life? Energy, diligence, those terms. Think about something you put effort into, that's something you really put a lot of your time and effort into and energy into. Does that transfer into your Christian life as well? All effort, all diligence. This is every Christian. I I just guess I'm just trying to emphasize that this is every single believer is called to this. Every, Every one of us. And God has done everything that we might be diligent. He doesn't just give us a command and don't give us the resources to obey the command. He has given us all the resources to do that. To reach the goal. And I want to remind you of this. Salvation is monergistic. We've said that before. Salvation, your justification is monergistic. It is a work of grace in your life. God saves you. You have no part in that. He saves you. He's the one that provides the faith. He's the one that provides the drawing, everything to himself. But progressive sanctification is synergistic. It means working together. It means that you cooperate with God. You grow in spiritual maturity. It doesn't mean you work apart from God. God saved you by the power of the Holy Spirit, and he gives you all diligence. He works in you, and he works through you. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. So then, my beloved, just as you always have obeyed, not only in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. He says in Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you. So it's not like he's saying you go work without me. No, you work because he's at work in you. That's sanctification. That's what I mean by synergism, synergistic. Sanctification is like that. God's part, my part. I cooperate with God. So he works in me and through me. And the Christian life is not going to be honoring to God without any human effort. Understand that. There must be human effort. Some people cringe when I say that. Some people cringe when you put the word effort into this. You say, effort? How can it be grace if there's effort? That's the difference between salvation and justification and salvation and sanctification. Salvation and justification, God declares me righteous by his work in my life. Sanctification is growing in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me read to you a verse in Titus. You don't have to turn there, but Titus chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Titus chapter 2, verse 11 of chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And notice what this grace has done. 
This grace has instructed us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Down in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's what God's grace has come to do, to, to call out a people for his own possession, a people who are zealous for good deeds, a people who deny ungodliness. I don't deny ungodliness to get saved. I don't, don't, I don't try to improve my life to get saved. No, that's a work of grace. That's God's mercy being shown to me, Him saving me and drawing me and giving me the faith to embrace Christ. That's justification. But in sanctification, no. It's that grace is working in me to deny ungodliness and every lawless deed calling me out to be a people, a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. So once again, passive is just inadequate. I've got to be proactive. I've got to recognize that I'm sustained by God's grace. You, you, you read words in the Bible like fight, uh, fight the good fight. You read words about warfare. You read words, words about wrestling. Those are all verbs. Those are words of action to describe the, the Christian life. For, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul says, I beat my body into submission. And then so, in, back in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verse 5, after he says, make every effort, then he tells you by which, how we reach the goals, and he lists these qualities. He gives you that list of those seven qualities. He said, so he's saying, make every effort on these qualities. He, and what's interesting to me is he doesn't focus on activities. He doesn't say, okay, join a Bible study, do evangelism, give money, go to church. He doesn't say activities, and it's nothing that anything's wrong with the activities, but his focus is not so much on activities as it is on character. It's on character. We sometimes let activities replace character. You can be talking to somebody that's really involved in all kinds of activities, but they never stop to ask themselves the question, do I have character? Do I have self-control? Do I have godliness? Do I have brotherly kindness? There are people that want to give money to lots of things, good things, but they don't love people. There are people that are, like I said, in all kinds of Bible studies, but they don't love people. We get so busy with the activities that we don't stop to ask ourselves, do we have character? Because all of these seven qualities are character, and they're all modeled in Christ, and they're all what it means to be a Christian. We are to become more and more like Christ. We were saved to be conformed to his image and to look like him. And Peter says, if you want, if you want to be effective and fruitful, these are things you must pursue. It's a lifelong pursuit. Sanctification is a lifelong pursuit. But I need to look at that list and I need to say, God, make me look like this all the time. Make me look like this. Because those activities are not equal to character. They're good things in themselves, but you know what? They're a means to an end. 
If you ever treat your activities as a means, as an end in themselves, that's where you get off, off balance, right there. Your quiet time is not an end in itself. Your Bible reading is not an end in itself. You can make it that way, but it must be more about it's making me to become more like Jesus. More like Him. Notice what comes before the list of qualities. Notice this in verse 5. In your faith, see the word in your faith? Let's just focus on that just for a moment. In your faith. You're going to add this to your faith. And he's talking here about genuine saving faith. Genuine saving faith. It's only when salvation has come to you that you can add these qualities. There are some people that will take this list of qualities and that will make it a nice pursuit of what I want to be like as a good moral person. Some people try to add these to their life and they're not even a true Christian. They don't have true saving faith. They try to add these things on. But keep in mind, faith is not something that comes from you. Faith is something that comes from God. Faith is something that is a gift of God. We saw back in verse 1. You see that in verse 1 of chapter 1. Faith is something you receive. Faith is something God does in you. For by grace we've been saved through faith and not that of ourselves. The gift is the salvation. The gift is the faith in that verse. Both are a gift from God. Saving faith is a gift from God. Saving faith, as we talked about before, was God making Christ so valuable to you. God opening your eyes to see the value of Christ and giving you the faith to embrace him. I used to use an illustration a long time ago on salvation that I don't use anymore. But the illustration went something like this. All these people are out in the water drowning God comes along now and throws out a life preserver to them and says, whoever will grab onto the life preserver will be saved. And so the call goes out, grab the life preserver. Grab the life preserver. The life preserver in this illustration is Jesus. Grab onto Jesus. Grab onto Jesus. Do that and you will be rescued. I used to believe that a long, long time ago, but I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches this. There's a huge body of water and there are a lot of dead bodies floating in it. And no matter how much you yell at those dead bodies, they will not grab onto the life preserver. They cannot respond to the call to grab the life preserver. You can yell and say, if you grab the life preserver, if you grab Jesus, you will be saved. But you can yell and yell that message as loud as you want and they will not be able to respond because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are spiritually dead and they cannot see. The only way to rescue them is for God to jump in the water himself and bring them to life and open their blind eyes that that life preserver will look so attractive and bring about the salvation that they realize they need. Before, they weren't even sure they needed it, but now they know they need it and they want it because God has done something in their heart first. 
God must bring you alive. That's true saving faith. When God does that work, it's not something you just muster up in yourself to try to make yourself believe something. No, it's God doing that work in your heart, opening your eyes and regenerating you that you might see and value Christ. The natural man does not value Christ. The natural mind does not desire the things of God. Something needs to be done to that person first, and that's God's work, and only God can do that. That's saving faith. And you embrace him because you see for the first time how valuable and how excellent and how beautiful he is. That's our memory verse, by the way, <clears throat> in the bulletin. Look, at the, if you've got a bulletin, John 1, 12, see it? But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Where did, the, where did that belief come from? Verse 13, who were born of God, who were born? Not of, the blood, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. The reason they believe is because they were born of God. The reason they received was because they were born of God. And that's what regeneration does. It changes us on the inside. And I guess my point in mentioning this is because many people will look at 2 Peter 1, 5 through 5-7 and try to add those things that list of those seven virtues, they'll try to add those things, and they're not even in the faith. Have you ever wondered why your parents love to come to church and you don't? Have you ever wondered why your wife loves to study the Bible and you don't? Have you ever wondered why your husband desires to fellowship with other believers and you don't? The question may lie in the fact that you have not been born of God may lie in the fact that you do not desire the things of God because God has not done that work in your heart. You're born of the flesh, and that's it. It's only one who has been born of God that desires those things. Genuine faith produces desires. It motivates us. The reason a true believer is motivated by 2 Peter 1.8 is because the Holy Spirit has worked in their heart to make that a desire. You see, that's a desire the Holy Spirit has for you, and he puts that desire in your heart as well. So genuine faith, that's what we're talking about here. You cannot do anything with what Peter is saying here if you're not a true believer. 2 Corinthians 13.7 says, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? Salvation is about Jesus in you. Salvation is about Jesus living in you. It's not about adopting a lifestyle. That's not what it means to be a Christian. It's not about coming to a building. It's not about getting your name on the roll. It is about being a partaker of the divine nature. Verse 3 and 4. You have to supply the effort to grow. You have to say, yes, he has taken residence in me as a Christian, and because he is in in me, I want to now work out my salvation. So faith is at the very foundation of this whole thing. These qualities we're going to talk about, start talking about next week, they're all supernatural qualities. 
you have to supply the effort to grow in these things. They are increasing. So Satan is a great counterfeit. He wants to make people think that they are in the faith and they're not. Just clean up your life and that's all you have to do. That's not true. You must be regenerated from within. I always just say this about these qualities. They're not added mechanically. You don't just say, well, this week I'm focusing on steadfastness. Next week, I'll focus on self-control. Next week, after that, brotherly kindness. That's not how these virtues are. It's the Holy Spirit is the conductor here. And he is bringing all these together, working together. We need them all at once. They all rely on the other. The word supplied is an interesting word in, in the Greek. It has to do with um, supplying everything that's needed for a choir. It's the idea that they used to have these Greek plays and they'd have a chorus there and they would provide everything that was needed to provide for that chorus, everything that was needed to provide for that, that music, that, that, song, that singing. It was to make them sound, to help with the sound of that chorus. And that's kind of what this is. To, you, don't want, you wouldn't want one, of your, one thing to be stronger than the other. You wouldn't want one voice in the choir being louder than the other. He drowns all the others out, things like that. You want it all to be one beautiful voice. That's what the word supply is. An interesting use of a word here. But that's what the Holy Spirit does. He's the conductor. And he's the one that builds these to our lives. And so that's my question to all of us this morning, myself included. Are we making every effort to be like Christ? We have been given tremendous advantages, tremendous resources. We've been given faith. Are we making every effort? We've been given promises do you care about this? Do you even care? That's the question. Do you even care? Do you want this more than you want anything else? Paul says, I press on that I may know him. That I may know him. I just say that as a meditation before this table this morning to think on these things. May we be a church that pursues Christ's likeness not just activities, but Christ's likeness, that we pursue character. We live in a culture that minimizes the importance of character. I'll say more about that next week, but we minimize the importance of character. We just want to stay busy and entertained and ignore character. Character matters. We used to have character in our leaders of our nation, and that doesn't even matter anymore. But to God, character matters. Character matters. Father, thank you. As we come to this table today, God, I pray that our thoughts will be on Christ and what he has done. And because of what he has done, what we need to do. We just thank you and love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.